Welcome to season three, episode 23 of The Great Sources. This is going to be the final episode of season three. In season three, we've gone through some major fundamental works of Jewish thought from the Rishonim. And those were in order, Amunis Vedeus, Abub Sadigoyim, Duties of the Heart, of Rabachi Abu Pekude, Kuzri of Rabbi Halevi, Amuna Harama, from Ibn Da'ud, God of the Perplexed, from the Rambam, Maimonides, and the last lecture, and this final one, about the Or Hashem, written by Chastai Kreskas. Or Hashem is such an underappreciated work, such an astounding, fascinating, and deep work, and I recommend that you immerse yourself in it further and study it further. We're going to see another aspect of it today, in addition to what we saw last time, Two lectures cannot do this deep work justice, but we do what we can. So this is the final episode of this of this um, season, where we reviewed these fundamental works. I want to ask those of you who haven't yet rated this podcast to please do so. It helps people discover this when the podcast has a favorable rating. Um, additionally, I'm going to put links in the episode description my other projects, including my essay series and my new Sefer about Eretz Yisrael. If you haven't subscribed to that essay series, if you haven't purchased that Sefer yet, go ahead and do so. There's so much work to be done, so much to learn, so much good that we need to accomplish. So I want to tell you one piece of information which I neglected to mention in the last shear, the last episode about <clears throat> the Ar Hashem of Chastek Kreskas. In the last episode, we discussed Kreskas is focused on the infinite and various aspects of that, some of which we're going to touch upon again today. What we discussed then was <clears throat> that, according to Abchaste Kreskas, the Mishnah Torah, the Rambam's halachic work, is incomplete because since Torah knowledge is infinite, knowing a fraction of Torah knowledge is the equivalent of knowing nothing because there is no ratio between the infinite and any fraction. And that's his criticism of the Mishnah Torah. Uh, we mentioned then too that Kreskas' understanding of God is that God is the infinite good and has infinite positive attributes. And we spoke another aspect of uh, infinity too, but we don't have to go into that now. I wanted to mention that the Rambam himself, in his introduction to Sefer HaMitzvah, says that in his halachic work, Mishnah Torah, he contains all the laws written before him in Mishnah, Tosefta, and Gemara, etc. And he says that any other laws which are not written explicitly can easily be derived from what he wrote. So Maimonides himself seems to say, <clears throat> seems to respond to Kreskas' critique. Kreskas' critique of Maimonides' halachic work is that it's incomplete and insufficient, utterly insufficient, given that there's an infinite aspect of Torah that we don't know, and therefore our approach to Torah law has to be an approach that allows for the infinite. While Maimonides seems to say that one can infer from his, from his code, one can infer any uh, case that might arise, even if it's not explicit. Now, that's an interesting thing to consider, whether Kreskas' concept of infinity, including the possibility, this is the third aspect of infinity, the possibility of infinite space, and even the possibility of infinite worlds, whether it's due to that, that Kreskas understands that the Torah has to <coughs> address an infinite number of cases infinite number of circumstances and therefore knowing Torah means understanding 
the Torah in a way that allows us to access its infinitude, while Maimonides considers the world to be finite, um, and therefore understands that there's a limited number of cases, although very vast, that the Torah has to address, and he can give you the basic rules for them, while Kreskas allows for the idea that Torah has to be infinitely adaptable, and that for that we need to understand the rules of the Torah, the methods of the Torah, and not cases. So that's just a comment, something for you to consider, that Maimonides seems to respond to Kreskas's critique, and it's interesting to think about considering what we know today of how complicated things can be and how complex the world seems to be. Um, it's interesting to consider that one might lean towards Kreskas's argument. <clears throat> I will leave it at that. And today we are going to discuss Kreskas's thought about some fascinating topics. And I want to warn you, if you're not ready to hear some astonishing ideas that run counter to the way we typically think about the Torah, then <clears throat> this lecture might not be for you. But if you're willing to open up your mind and let yourself, let your mind be bent in ways that are unfamiliar and new and strange and tantalizing, then I invite you to continue listening. We're going to talk about a few aspects of Kreskas' thought that are related. And those are free will, reward and punishment, the purpose of the Torah and the purpose of the world, and the nature of reward in the world to come. So free will, reward and punishment in general, the purpose of the Torah and the purpose of the world, and um, the nature of the reward in the world to come. Those are the things we're going to discuss today. They are related to each other. And what we're going to see furthermore is that they relate to the core idea that we discussed in the last lecture, which is Kreska's conception of God as being the infinite good from which follows or, or which contains infinite positive attributes, all of which are good. That's a key idea that we're going to see plays a role in Kreskas' understanding of the purpose of the Torah in general and the nature of reward. Okay, so Kreskas approaches the problem of free will. And uh, we're not going through the whole book. We're taking some excerpts here. This is in um, <clears throat> the second Mimer, fifth Klal, first chapter. And I'm going to be going through and presenting some of his thoughts about, basically in order from there, we're going to be discussing free will, and then reward and punishment, and, and, and the goal, etc. The purpose of the Torah, the purpose of the world. So he starts off with the question, do human beings truly have free will? Which seems to be a foundation of religion, that human beings can um, make their own decisions. So... He starts off laying out some proofs that there are free will and other proofs against the idea of free will. The proofs that there are free will from the Torah are the fact that there are mitzvahs, there are commandments, and there are warnings in the Torah. The Torah tells us, gives us commandments, God commands us what to do and warns us against doing certain things, which implies that we are free to decide. Furthermore, the Torah also contains reward and punishment. If man is not free, if everything that man does is determined by forces external to himself, then why would man be given mitzvahs and abeiris, reward, uh, commandments, what to do and what not to do, everything it just happens whether he likes it or not? And how would it be just for him to be punished or rewarded 
for his choices if he actually is not really choosing. So there's the contradiction. And I just presented you one aspect of his argument. There's other aspects that relate to reality, whether it's possible for something to be truly possible or does everything have to be deterministic. Um, I'm not going to present that. I'm just presenting his proofs from the Torah. So his proofs in the Torah that there is free will, the proofs are the fact that the Torah commands us what to do and warns us against doing other things, and the fact that the Torah promises reward and punishment for tzaddikim, for righteous people and wicked people, respectively. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, he says, we can prove that everything is deterministic from the fact that God has foreknowledge of everything, <clears throat> which the only way to, for God to know things is for it to be predetermined. So, on the one hand, then, we have proof that everything is predetermined because we have God having perfect knowledge of the future. On the other hand, <clears throat> we have things being uh, left to man's choice, which is why God has to cajole man through reward and punishment, through commandment and, and, and warnings, and then um, how to act, and then rewards him or punishes him based on his proper or improper decision. So that's the contradiction. And Kreskas' solution is the following. That things are <clears throat> inherently possible. However, they are determined by things external to them. So, that is to say, when a person does a mitzvah, let's say a person does a good deed, he gives charity. So yes, from the fact that the Torah has to command a person to give charity, from that we can prove, says Kreskas, that it's not inherently necessary for the person to give charity. However, it is necessary for him to give charity after he was so commanded. The commandment itself is part of the causal chain that determines that man should act. So therefore, the proof that he brought from the fact that there's commandments in the Torah, that tells us that man is free. Kreska says, no, that only tells us that man must not act unless there's a certain causal chain that affects action. And a major part of that causal chain is the commandment or the prohibition. So God speaking to us and telling us what to do and what not to do itself is the cause that makes what we do predetermined. And therefore God has perfect knowledge. God has perfect knowledge of the future, but not because the future is determined irrespective of its causes, rather because the future is determined based on its causes, an important aspect of which is the commandment of God, which affects people and makes them act in accordance with that commandment. Okay, so that solves the problem of how can we say God has foreknowledge of everything, which suggests that things are predetermined, and at the same time, God has to command us or warn us command us to do good and warn us against doing evil. If it's predetermined, why does God have to command us? The answer to that, Kreska says to review, is that it is predetermined that there will be a causal chain which will cause the righteous person to listen to the, to the to do the good deed. And that what that is caused by is the commandment itself. Okay, what about the other argument? How could God reward good and punish evil if <clears throat> man is merely acting on the basis of forces that are external to him and that affect him and determine that he should act in a certain way. 
says Crescas, well, if reward and punishment would be the way we tend to think of it, as a person deserves something for doing good as a recompense, then that would be a good argument. But if reward and punishment follows, itself is caused by action. Good action causes reward, and sin causes what we call punishment. And that itself follows, is all part of the same causal chain, then reward and punishment then becomes justified just as if a person puts his hand into a fire, his hand burns, and that's not because he deserves it, as in he's paid back with the burn, but rather the burn follows from putting a hand in the fire. Similarly, certain negative effects follow from sins, and positive things follow from good deeds. Now, we're going to learn more about this later, what the nature of reward is according to Kreskas, and how it does follow from, uh, from doing good deeds. Now, Kreska says that something which you might be thinking, which is that to publicize this idea would be very dangerous to the Hamoin, to the masses. Hapirsum hazeh mazik lahamoin, to publicize this radical idea <clears throat> that man is not truly free, would be dangerous to the masses because they would consider that an excuse for those, do evil, for those who do evil. Or they might not feel that punishment follows sin like effect follows a cause. So he says the Torah is well aware of this, that this is not a doctrine that we want to teach or publicize. It's a secret doctrine. And therefore the Torah sets up the mitzvos as intermediaries that move a person. And if I understand it correctly, and um, I say that because I encourage you to look at it yourself and reach your own conclusion here, because I'm presenting my understanding of what he's saying here, but it's, it's cryptic. The Torah is written as if, as if a person is expected to make that decision of whether he's going to listen to the Torah. And that's by design. The reason why the Torah is written, designed that way, <clears throat> is because people, simple people, the masses, are not capable of thinking of the Torah as being part of a causal chain. And therefore, the Torah is presented talks to us as if we have um, absolute free will and as if we are responding by choice to its commandments while really we are being led by the force of its commandments to act in, in accordance to them. Of course, I mean to say in those cases where we do act in accordance with those commandments. In the cases where we don't, that's because we're led by, being led by, we are being dictated, led by other forces to do things that go against the commandments of the Torah. Now, then Kreska says an amazing thing, and this he calls Soid Habakhira Baharatsan, the secret of free will, and the secret of willing what you do. And this is a key idea which we're going to learn about a lot. The idea that Kreska says that even though a person is truly acting based on forces that are outside, external to himself, whether he acts with his own will, and when we say will here, we're talking about um, excitement happiness, desire to do what he is doing. Remember, he doesn't really choose what he's doing. But there is this mirage and there is this uh, illusion that the Torah presents as if a person is, is making choices and as if he's getting rewarded and punished for his own free choices. And that's only the case in those kinds of acts where a person is in fact happy with his choice and feels like he's in control because then that feeling, and here you see what's going to happen is Kreskas is going to 
tell, tell us that feelings are very important in his whole concept of the Torah. The feeling that a person has, that he's doing something simply, he's doing something happily and willingly, and remember willingly there is an interesting word because he's not actually making the choice, it was actually, he's actually being um, led to it by forces external to himself, but he brings his inner self, his inner psychic self, his inner emotive self, he brings that in line with the action that he's being forced to do. Well then, in that case, he deserves word of punishment. And here it's again cryptic. I think Kreskas, because there's a big question over here, does Kreskas mean to say that the inner self is beyond the causal chain? Is that something that a person really has control over, his own emotions, his own happiness? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is that this whole um, presentation that the Torah makes, that reward and punishment is due to your choice, the way the Torah presents it, the way the Torah teaches us, that reward and punishment follows from a person's free will. When truly a person is not free, the only reason that can make sense is because there is an aspect that is very personal. And that's the aspect of the person's emotive stance. Does he feel good about what he did? Now, why is that so important? Why is that so important how a person feels? In order to understand that, we're going to get back to this later where Cressa is going to talk about the nature of reward, the nature of the good that results from Torah observance. So stay tuned for that to understand that better. So Kreskas leaves things somewhat ambiguous because on the one hand, he seems to believe that things are predetermined by forces external to the human and the human is just part of the causal chain. That seems to be very much what he holds. But then he says, however, if it's true that there are no external forces, and then he parenthetically throws in, and that's what's correct according to the Torah, then he says, we can still say that things are are predetermined based on God's knowledge, although not based on their causal change. So I'm not going to go into that other theory. I just want to say that he leaves it with a note of ambiguity and seems to suggest that although he just said this radical idea that man's actions are actually determined by forces external to himself, what is correct according to the Torah is, to, is, is not to say that. But I think there's a deliberate ambiguity here because remember he said that <clears throat> even according to his theory, that in fact, man is controlled by causes outside of himself. The Torah, the Torah teaching, and the way the Torah talks to the masses is through this presentation, through this way of speaking and way of thinking, way of feeling as if we are in control. <clears throat> so there's somewhat of ambiguity here, and uh, he leaves it that way. Again, the ambiguity is, is the causal chain predetermined and everything is just one thing leads to another, including man's so-called choice? Or does man truly have free will and yet it's predetermined from God's knowledge because man, because God somehow knows what man will choose, although man's free in his choosing. From here, Kreskas goes to another argument, which is a fascinating discussion, something that, interestingly enough, Chesbe Kreskas gave a drusha, uh, drushas ha-Pesach, he gave a drusha in honor of Pesach, and his drusha was about this very question that he deals with over here, which is, whether... A person can be rewarded or punished not for what he does, but what for he believes. So he says, look, clearly, Hazal say if a person has the wrong beliefs, he gets severe punishment in the list of those who don't have a portion of the world to come <clears throat> in the Mishnah Sanhedrin. There are listed people who deny certain principles of the Torah. Now he says that belief is not something you can choose. How do I know, says Kreskas, belief is not something you can choose? Because 
If you choose to believe, that means your belief wouldn't be very strong because a person can will or not will something. Um, if belief is, is going to be strong, then it must be that belief is something that you are forced to accept based on being exposed to ideas that are external to yourself. And then he brings a few proofs to that. So then <clears throat> the problem becomes for what is a person rewarded for having the right beliefs or punished for not having the right beliefs if that's something that's beyond your own control. You only believe that which you are believe you think you know. So now Kreskas goes back before he gets to this point of what the role in what the role of proper beliefs is in terms of a person's ultimate reward. First Kreskas goes back and says, wait a second, everything that a person does, as we discussed, is predetermined. And yet a person can be rewarded or punished based on his desire, based on his excitement, based on his love for what he's doing. And the reason for that, and like I said, we're going to get back to this, but Kreskas here sort of foreshadows what he's going to discuss later. That the purpose of serving God and the purpose of doing good actions is that a person should be happy, have a cheshek, have a desire, and a simcha. A person has to have a, a sweetness, a arvos of his will to do the good. Because God, and this is a key point, remember God is good. That's the essence of God. And God's goodness is such that he loves the good and desires to do good. So therefore, to be God-like is to have a passion for good. So therefore, yes, a person, as we discussed, yes, a person is uh, determined by forces external to himself, whether he's going to do good or not. But the, if the person has a passion for the good, then he is godlike, and therefore he is rewarded. Remember the idea that the reward follows as an effect from doing good. But if a person does something good, but he doesn't have a passion for what he's doing, so then he's not cleaving to God through his essence. We're soon going to get to what the essence of the soul is. But his essence is not being godlike, and therefore he doesn't deserve to receive any reward for that. Okay, that's for actions. What about for beliefs? Beliefs has nothing to do with you. Well, you don't bring any excitement. A person could say, hey, I'm gonna, I really love this idea of giving tzedakah. I really love this idea of giving charity. And as we, as he said, that's what you get rewarded for because the love of giving charity means that you're in love, you're inflamed, you're impassioned with the idea of the good, which makes you godlike because God is good. But a person can't be in love, can't be uh, excited about Amuna, about belief, because you believe what you must believe, what you believe to be true. So here Kreskas takes a detour and says, well, you know, some people say, and this is Maimonides, that the reward for beliefs has nothing to do with the person attaining good. Rather, when we talk about reward for the true beliefs, what that really means is, is that when a person's intellect becomes completed, becomes perfected by knowing the truths, the important truths, that intellect is eternal. That is my mind's conception of the world to come. The eternity of the soul, immortality of the soul, is merely, well, maybe I shouldn't say merely, but it is but the permanence of acquired intellect. Now, Kreskas argues, he says, that has nothing to do with the Torah. 
Because the Torah is all about so many mitzvahs and details of mitzvahs. And all these details of the mitzvahs, the plethora of mitzvahs, is not about philosophy. In fact, there's very little philosophy in the Torah. Furthermore, says Kreskas, and I'm going to get back to these arguments, if a person attains his perfection by knowledge, then maybe a person should study the elements of Euclid. Um, and that would make him immortal more than someone who knows the Torah. So this opinion then is, is, works against the Torah and uh, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, it, it, besides for that, he finds it to be very absurd and he asks various questions on what exactly remains of the intellect, what if a person knows one thing, what if he doesn't know another, does that particular piece of information remain? He says it's all shtos hefset and divin, all silly and hefset um, divin, I'm sorry. He says an interesting thing. He says the philosopher, that's Aristotle, on the one hand didn't know the Torah, on the other hand, had some very strong evidence for the idea of the immortality of the soul. So therefore he made up this idea that the intellect lasts forever to reconcile this, but this is really not what the Torah is all about. And I might comment here that this is an argument that resonates resonates with people. I know when people hear Maimonides' take on the world to come, that's the eternity of the intellect. So people are familiar with the Torah, very bothered by this because it does not seem to be what the Torah is about. So Kreskas goes back to this. He says, you know what? Okay, so then why does a person get rewarded for the right beliefs? Well, if it's not about the belief itself, it must be then something that is associated with the belief. And that again, he says, like he says by action, it's the excitement that we have with having the right beliefs and the diligence, which is an action that we, that we apply to uh, attaining those right beliefs. So he says a person can have beliefs and not be excited about it. But the excitement about the beliefs, that is something that is associated with the person's will, what we call will. And therefore a person can be rewarded because you see, as we discussed earlier, we're going to get back to this, when a person's excited about the good, he's in love with the good, then he's do, becoming godlike. At this point, I'm here now in the sixth chapter, again, second, um, second mimer, Fifth cloud, chapter six. Here, Kreskas gives a beautiful explanation of the Gemara Shabbos that says that uh, at the time of the miracle of Purim, the Jewish people accepted the Torah happily. And um, while when they accepted the Torah at uh, Mount Sinai, they were forced to do so because God took the mountain and held it over their heads and says, if you accept the Torah, fine. If not, you'll be buried here. Um, and that's an excuse for the Torah. And Kreskas explains what that means is that at Maimed Harsina, at the time of the giving of the Torah, they were so impressed, they were so overwhelmed by the force of the miracles that they experienced that they had no choice to believe. And therefore, they didn't receive any reward for believing because the idea that God turned a mountain and said, if not, you'll be buried here, means that they understood that to not believe would be equivalent to death, as in they had no ability to disbelieve. So what should they get reward for? Only at the time of the, nas the miracle of Purim, when they were excited about the belief, they were excited for having the Torah and for, for being having the relationship with God. That's what a person gets rewarded for. And here he says a beautiful thing. He says, we know that the Gemara says in Brachos that it's forbidden to have any pleasure from this world without a blessing. And that's why whenever a Jew eats, you have to make a blessing because you don't have a pleasure from this world without a blessing. Says Kreskas, that the blessings of the morning, that a person makes a blessing for being a, a free 
Jewish man who's obligated in all all the totality of the mitzvahs of the Torah, those blessings are birchos hanenu. They're, the, they're the same blessings that a person has to make on having pleasure because the whole idea of the core of the Torah, the core um, approach and worship of the of having the beliefs of the Torah is to be excited about it and to enjoy it. Such a beautiful vision, Greska says, and therefore every morning, it's good to have this in mind, every morning you wake up and you make those blessings, you're making a blessing for the pleasure that you have from the um, from the faith, from the from your knowledge of God. So now, so let's just summarize what we know so far. So we see that happiness and excitement, pleasure in action and in belief is very central, and um, reward follows from that. And by a person having um, being excited about the good. He's doing as God does, who himself is good. And this is we're going to, this Kreskes is now going to explore uh, more generally. We're getting, now Kreskes goes to the idea of the purpose of the Torah and um, reward, and the nature of the reward. So, as we mentioned earlier, and Kreskes goes back to this, some people consider the purpose of the Torah, this is Imanides, the purpose of the Torah and the ultimate reward for a person's intellect to be perfected. Um... And that is the immortality of the soul, is that the, the intellect, the acquired intellect, is immortal. What does a person have to know in order for his intellect to be immortal? So he says there's different opinions about that. Do we say the more facts a person knows, the more immortality he has? Is it only about the important facts, such as about, about God and the angels? Those are questions about that. Okay. But... He says the following about these opinions. He says that they are Hores the Torah and Orkrim Shershehakabalot. They destroy the Torah and they uproot the roots of the tradition. And what he means by that is because if you look at the Torah, the Torah talks about, and the tradition, that if a person wants to attain eternal life, he should do a mitzvah. As the Mishnah says in Kedushin, anyone that does one mitzvah, they do good to him. And the Gemara explains that he receives the good for the world to come. And according to these opinions, the mitzvos, the mitzvos of actions, are only preparatory, only aids for us to attain intellectual perfection. And if a person's intellect could be perfected without the mitzvos, there would be no need for the mitzvos. So the centrality of the mitzvos in the Torah and the tradition is, um, is challenged by this theory, says Kreska, this idea that a person should attain immortality and ultimate reward through perfecting his intellect. Additionally, says Kreskas, we find that there's reward and punishment for mitzvahs that have nothing to do with a person's intellect. For example, the Gemara says that people who were killed of Kiddush Hashem, people who were killed and sanctified God's name, but when they were killed, have the highest level of reward. While there's no condition there, that they attained great intellect. And if they did attain great intellect, what's the difference if they were killed? Furthermore, we find tremendous punishments for people who, say, uh, someone who embarrasses a friend in public, or someone who's a moister, doesn't have a, a portion of the world to come. Now, these people, asks Kreskas, may have perfected intellect. So why wouldn't they be permanent? People who deny important aspects of the tradition. For example, people who deny resurrection, the Mishnah says, have no share in the world to come. But if that 
heretic who denies the resurrection perfected his intellect in other ways. He knows other things. He knows about God. He knows about the unity of God. And he knows maybe 12 of the other 13 principles of faith that Noamis wrote. Well, why shouldn't that aspect of him be eternal? Yet we say he has no share in the world to come. Another argument, as Crescas, is that we find, and this is a, a very well-known thing, and it's a tradition in the nation, that to the degree of a person's amount of mitzvahs or averis, that's how much pleasure or pain he'll have in the world to come. While according to these opinions, reward and punishment is all about the intellect. Besides the fact, as Crescas, the idea that the intellect should have pleasure in the world to come is uh, clearly incorrect. And... It's an amazing argument here, he says. He says, I'm jumping ahead, but Kreskas foreshadows it. He said the following. He says, according to Maimonides, that, that what remains, what's immortal is the intellect. Well, where's the pleasure there? Says Maimonides, well, there's great pleasure in intelligizing. And Kreskas argues that we only, we only get pleasure from learning something, from the process of learning something, from finding out something that we didn't know. We don't get pleasure from knowing what we know. And the proof is that axioms which don't require study and we just know because we're inborn with certain ideas or somehow they develop in us, however that happens. We don't take pleasure in the fact that we know the axioms. We take pleasure in the, in the process of the difficult, arduous process of attaining some, some rear knowledge or difficult knowledge to attain. But if the intellect is absolute in the world to come and permanent, then where's the pleasure? Because the pleasure doesn't come from not knowledge, for knowing things. It comes from uh, changing from the state of ignorance to the state of knowledge. So that's his argument against associating the pleasure with intellectual pleasure. And he says, he argues furthermore that Chazal put a major stress on action. And learning is only so great, learning is so important because it brings to action. So then, if the purpose of study is action, clearly then, uh, these ideas, the idea of Amanides and others, um, Rabban, that intellectual perfection is the essence of what the Torah is all about, go against the principles and the roots of the Torah. This is Kreskas' very, very strong argument on the Mahmanadian approach to perfection. And now Kreskas sets out to tell us. Um, but I just want to add one thing he says over here very strongly. He says that this idea of intellectual perfection <clears throat> comes from the philosophers. As we, he mentioned earlier, that they, on the one hand, were forced, for some reason, doesn't explain, to believe in the, etern in the immortality of the soul, and they tried to figure it out, and they came up with this idea of the intellect being permanent. And he says, some of the sages of our nation were seduced to follow them, but they didn't realize, it didn't occur to them how they're destroying the wall of the Torah and breaking its fences, besides the fact that the whole thing makes no sense. So, very strong criticism of Maimonides for following for accepting this kind of thought and, um, and interpreting the Torah in light of this kind of thought that the um, perfection of a human and his immortality consists in his intellect being perfected and, and that intellect being immortal. So at this point, Kreskas has to explain what is the final end of the Torah and how, what is human perfection and the immortality of the soul? Says Kreskas, the Torah is all about love and fear of God. 
not about ideas, nor is it about actions. Remember, actions are not really chosen by a person. What the Torah really cares about, and what's the true perfection of man that the Torah is tending towards, is the Ahavas Hashem Yisbarach V'yoso Ha'amitis, the true love and fear of God. Now he says, of course, there are various psukim that say that everything is all about love. The Torah is looking for, the Torah wants, is that a person should have tremendous excitement there's a reason to do the mitzvahs and very carefully avoiding averis with happiness and and good heart. And that's the secret of serving God with love and with fear. And if this is what the Torah is all about, then it must be that this is what makes the soul immortal. Now, how is this what makes the soul immortal? So first, Kreskas goes into what the soul is. And this is something I'm not going to go not going to go into because it takes us a little bit uh, into a different kind of way of thinking here. But clearly, we can't say that the soul is the intellect if the soul is immortal through love and fear. Okay, so I'll just tell you that Kreska says that the soul is a spiritual substance that has the capacity for intellect, but is not the intellect itself. It's an etzem ruchni, spiritual substance. Secondly. Perfection is love of the good. And according to a person's perfection, they will have more love for the good. And this is, see, we're getting back to this idea of the good. Remember, the good is God. God is the good. He's the infinite good. And perfection, the greatest perfection is to be godlike and to love the good. That's not intellect. That's not intellect. That's something else. That's love. Pleasure. And this itself... This itself is connecting to God. So here's how. God, who is perfection itself, loves good. God loves the good. The proof of that is that God created all of existence and gives a continual existence due to his will. So apparently then, loving the good is essential to his perfection. Then it follows, furthermore, that the one who is more perfect has a greater love for the good. So God, in his great perfection, has the greatest love for the good. And he says a beautiful thing. He says, Avram was called the Ohev, the one who loved God. But Hashem is called the one who is Cheshek in the forefathers. Cheshek, Cheshek is a greater degree of love than Avram. That's because God... To love is to be perfect. To love the good is to be perfect. The greatest perfection is to be excited about the good. Isn't this beautiful? It's such a mind-boggling way of thinking. And God, in his great perfection, is passionately in love with the good. And that's what cheshek means. While the most we can attain to is ava, is love for God, who is the greatest good. Now, since God is the greatest good, that's why the love for God must be the greatest love because everyone desires the good and if God is the greatest good being the greatest lover of good and the source of good <clears throat> then he must be the object of the greatest love and the soul becomes perfected by becoming in love with the good 
So the love between the soul and God is a perfection of the soul. How the soul becomes godlike, and how the soul cleaves to God, and how the soul then becomes immortal. So you see the purpose of the Torah, which is this relationship between us and God, and God is the good, that's the essence of God. So the relationship between us and God means we are supposed to love the good, we're supposed to love the ultimate good, which is God. To, to the degree that we love the ultimate good, we become God, like because God loves the good, look, look what he does. And therefore we cleave to God, and we can only attain a level of love below the level of God's love for us, because he's the ultimately, he's the most perfect, and therefore the greatest in love. So Kreskas, what he does is, is he puts the emotive emotions at the center of Judaism. So he does two things which you can put together here. You know, we talked about God being the good in the last lecture, and here we see how God being the good anchors this whole concept of the love for God, and not just that, but the perfection of the soul is being inspired, being excited about the good. And he says that's why Chazal can talk about the reward for the punish for the tzaddikim and the punishment for the shalom, the the excitement or the pain depends on a person's perfection that he attained. And furthermore, he says the um, the Gemara says that children attain the world to come from when they can say Amen, from when they're old enough to say Amen. That has nothing to do with them achieving intellectual perfection. But rather, Chazal, to whom the hidden secrets of wisdom were revealed through a prophetic rabbinic science, Manda Nevu'i Rabbani, an interesting expression there, they knew that at that point when a person is old enough to say Amen, his soul is well developed enough for that soul to then be the soul that can love God. But but he says, if, again, going back to the argument, that if the uh, soul is immortal through its attaining intellectual knowledge, how could a child who can just say amen attain um, immortality? And unless you say that it's first principles, like the child knows that the, that the whole is larger than some of its parts, is that the immortal soul of the child? So again, he rejects this. He says, it's rather all about love. And that's why there's such a focus on love in the Torah. Of course, we say Shema, love Hashem with all your heart and all your soul. And everything you're supposed to do is for the sake of heaven, which means you're not supposed to love anything. It's supposed to be a greatest love that consumes you. Um, the, great, the, the love for the good depends on the degree of the good. The most, the most, um, the greatest good is infinite good as we explained, is God himself. And therefore, there is no greater love than a love for God. Amazing. That's furthermore why the Torah talks about Hashem as being jealous, Kilkana. He's jealous of us when we love other things because we're supposed to be in love with him as him being the true good. If we love other things, that means we're misunderstanding what's good. And that's why this God is described as being as jealous. That's the purpose of um, the Torah. Now he says a very interesting distinction. He says, the purpose from our perspective, what we attained from the Torah is this kind of being in love with the good. The mitzvahs do that for us. Um, how the Torah does this, how the mitzvahs do this, we're not going to go into. He has a long few chapters where he talks about the purpose of mitzvahs and how they guide us to this. But mitzvahs bring us to this kind of passion and being in love with the good. 
So that's the purpose from our perspective. The purpose from God's perspective is because God does good, and this leads us to the greatest pleasure, the pleasure of loving the good. So basically, you see how Kreskas places that concept of the good at the center of his theology, which is the essence of God, and at the center of his um, the purpose of man and the perfection of man. We are supposed to be intoxicated with the idea of the good, in love with the idea of the good. God is the ultimate good, he's the infinite good, and therefore the love for God is, supposed to, is, is the purpose of Torah and the perfection of man. Now, I must comment over here that this is very Torahic. The idea of placing the concept of the goodness of the universe at the center of the Torah, well, that brings us back to the first chapter of the Torah where it says everything is good. So the, the idea of thinking about the good and that being what man is supposed to be concerned with is something which is very biblical. We can see that these ideas in the Torah. Now, however, however, we keep on talking about the good as this abstract idea, and even God being the infinite good as this idea, well, God is infinite good. Well, what does good mean? Does good have an independent meaning and not being in relation to something else? This is a major question in philosophy, and this, if you really want to understand Kreskas' thinking, we have to think about the philosophy of it. Is there, does the good have meaning in and of itself? Can we talk about God as being good without saying, well, good for what? Does it mean, does it mean anything to the infinite good? What does it mean to love the good? It's, it sounds beautiful. And um, it sounds wonderful. And it definitely can make a person be very passionate and excited. But what does it really mean? What is the content of the good? These are questions that um, Kreskas' amazing approach forces us and really encourage us to think. Okay, so the purpose of the world, and here I want to end with this. This is the purpose of the Torah, and the mitzvahs lead to this, but this is also the purpose of the world. Because while Maimonides insists that we can't find a purpose for the world, Kreska says, look, if God is good, and good loves good, and the world is good, well, then that's a purpose. The world has a purpose. It is, as it were, the world is, one can say, he says, one can call it something that is adding to God's perfection. Okay, without going into that astounding statement there that we can talk about completing God's perfection. This is a Kabbalistic idea that Avodah is necessary for God. But Kreskas allows for that. He says, because if God is good and good does good and good loves good, then the world being good is um, contributing, makes God the good that he is, let's say. Um, and then one other point about this is that this concept that from God, who's unified, one thing follows, and then, which is a major concept in the Maradabuchim, but then on the other hand, we have this plurality in the world. Kreska says, well, it's all unified in that it's all Good. So again, we have the idea of the good as being central in the whole theology, the whole Torah of Chastik Kreskas. God is good. The purpose of the Torah is the good. The purpose of the world is good. The reward is being in love with the good, being passionate with the good. And through that, the soul is perfected and cleaves to God, who himself is good and the greatest lover of the good. Amazing. Again, goes without saying, I encourage you to try to engage with this very, very difficult and dense work. It takes a lot of work to decipher what Kreskos is saying, but I think these lectures hopefully give you a, a sense of how rewarding it can be, how exciting it can be, 
Uh, also, of course, it gives a, 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 an alternative to the Rambam and um, alternative to Rabbi Huda Levi. So I think we can, we can summarize and say we, we, we basically have explored through these six books that we discussed, we've explored four approaches. One approach was the sort of Kalam approach of, of Sadi Goyen which is a not an Aristotelian approach, but an argumentative kind of logical approach, but not quite using Aristotelian rules. And then we had the Rambam and the Ibn Da'ud. Uh, we could put the Chavis in that camp too, to the extent that he deals in philosophy, but of course there was a lot of Musa there. Maimonides and Ibn Da'ud are the Aristotelians in, this, in the Jewish thought that we've studied. Yehud um, Levi has got his own thing happening where he wants to look at the Torah as Hashem's revelation um, and not put it into uh, philosophical categories and here we have Chastik Kresses doing something really interesting something in between where he's using philosophical categories but a different kind of philosophical thinking than um, Aristotle a lot of it is about the good and a lot of it is about the infinite as we discussed last time once again I want to ask you um, to please rate this podcast for this we bring season 2 to a close thank you so much for joining me I'm sorry season 3 to a close of our studies of the great books. Uh, I would tell you what I'm thinking for season four, but it's a little bit premature. I look forward to starting that probably sometime after Pesach, so we're going to have a decent break now. And that should be really exciting and interesting, but I haven't yet determined what that's going to be about. Take care, everyone. Good night. And thank you very much for listening.